0: This is Anger Management a podcast about adventures in democratic thinking and my name is Karin Pettersson
1: My name is Georg Dietz
0: and this week we met with superstar, thinker Harvard legend, philosopher politician Roberto Mangabeira Unger
1: He's a Brazilian He's uh, been in Harvard for All his life life. He uh, invited us to his very nice home, and we had a conversation basically about how to uh, reinvent democracy, which is what we want to do with anger management uh, for the next few months. Find uh, the people who bring utopian or pragmatic visions or solutions.
0: Just anything that changes things and takes us from this place somewhere else
1: and Unger was really inspiring I think it was good to have him that early in the in, 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 in our podcast he is very structured very bold in his um, statements about democracy um he um i, I think is is interesting because he has very uh unique words and very unique um he has ways a beautiful of framing language that. yes and, and and he talks about hot and cold democracies for example I, I found that really um, helpful to, yes. to 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 and that's what you were interested in to find out what are the concrete solutions participation fast decision making in politics and it's not sort of the usual fear of um, populism or or participatory democracy.
0: I like something that I really like about him is that he's had a career in real politics. So he's been in the Brazilian government. He worked with Lula. Um, he has been going back and forth between intellectual life and trying to actually, actually change things. I don't know if I would agree that he's super structured. I think he's sometimes kind of hard to follow, uh, but that's up to our listeners to decide. Um, he has, he's very, um, he has a very beautiful language. Um, he's not, um, well, you can listen to this yourselves. But one of my favorite phrases is. Um, no trauma, no transformation, and he also riles against bad utopianism, which I think is the
1: and against Piketty. And against Piketty at the end. At so the end. so uh, stick so st- with us.
0: Stick with the podcast.
1: Enjoy. So, Mr. Umer, thank you for your time. Um, Maybe we start with the present. Um, is if, if, if you see Donald Trump as part of a rebellion against uh, globalization, I would be curious to see. How this fits into your writing and thinking about free trade or protectionism? Or, in other words, is Trump, in a strange way, a rebellion against the system uh, of globalization, which should have come or could have come from the left, but it's now coming from the right?
2: Uh, well, uh, l- let me say a word about the United States and then begin a more general discussion. Uh, In the United States, as in much of the world, uh, the liberals or progressives, liberals in the American sense of progressives, have had no project for a long time. Their project has been the humanization of the project of their conservative adversaries. The Democratic Party failed to come up with a sequel to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal. That is to say, with an agenda responsive to the needs, interests, and aspirations of the broad working class majority of the country. Uh, They uh, developed a a political project of concessions to the leaders of different minorities uh, and uh, to the uh, uh, interests of their traditional constituencies. They genuflected to progressive taxation, even though they know that progressive taxation has a purely marginal effect on the economic structure. And they subcontracted the strategy of economic growth to the central bank, to the Federal Reserve. So there was a vacuum in American politics. Uh, The conservatives in the United States occupied this vacuum with a formula of power which has prevailed in the country for several decades. And the formula was to give material concessions to the money classes and non-material concessions, those concessions to the moral anxieties, to the moneyless classes. And this agenda was sufficient to maintain and hold power for a long time, given the absence of a progressive project. But uh, both these positions, the the the, the, the weak position of the, uh, of the progressives and the evasive position of the conservatives uh, orphaned the white working class majority of the United States. So there was a huge vacuum. And what has happened in the United States, as in other parts of the world, is that someone came into this vacuum. If he didn't exist, he would have been invented. Uh, But I think we have to see this in a larger context, especially in Europe. Uh, And the context is that the, uh, the settlement, the compromise, that now determines the limits of mainstream politics in Europe, as in the United States, is no longer capable of solving or even addressing the major structural problems of society. So, if we were to make a list of these problems, uh, I would place the following five themes on this list, and I'll just enumerate them without discussing them, unless our conversation takes takes us in that direction. Uh, So, let's begin with two themes that are at at least within the horizon of the established discussion, but just barely. So the first is the quality of public services, which is a major issue of electoral politics in the European democracies. Uh, uh, What exists by way of the provision of public services in all the advanced societies is what you could call an administrative Fordism by by analogy to so-called Fordist mass production. That is, it's the provision of standardized, low-quality services by the bureaucratic apparatus of the state, Uh, lower in quality than the analogous services that could be bought in the market by someone with money. That's what we have. And the only alternative to that seems to be the privatization of public services in favor of profit-driven firms. So to enhance the quality of public services, We would have to organize civil society, independent civil society, and engage it together with the state in the experimental provision of public services. And that would require a transformation of the state and of its relation to civil society. Now I come to the second problem. The second problem is the relation of finance to the real economy. In all the advanced Western economies, the the production system is largely self-financed on the basis of the retained and reinvested earnings of private firms. So we know empirically that well over 80% of the financing of production is internally generated within the production system itself. But what then is the point of all of that money in the banks and the stock markets? Theoretically, It's to finance the productive agenda of society. In reality, it has only an oblique or episodic relation to the to the to the real economy. So what happens is that in in good times, finance is indifferent to the real economy, and in bad times, it's destructive. It's a bad master instead of a good servant, and we would need to change institutionally the relation of finance. Now, now, we come to, now those two themes are at least visible. Now we come to the deeper themes. They're entirely beyond the horizon of the yes, institutional and ideological settlement in the North Atlantic democracies. So the third theme is the hierarchical segmentation of the economy between advanced and backward sectors. There's a new paradigm of production, knowledge-intensive, radically innovative production. And the vast majority of the labor force is excluded from it. Uh, There's economic stagnation and social exclusion or inequality. They would both be addressed if we could disseminate this advanced practice of production throughout the economy, rather than allowing it to be confined to insular vanguards, as it now is. Uh, But that would require a reinvention of the market economy and of its relation to the state, Uh, a different way of firms relating to the state and a different way of firms relating to one another. Now I come to the fourth problem, which is the practical basis of social solidarity in the North Atlantic societies. So the reality, especially in the European societies, has been that... Uh, money transfers organized by the state, which are always an insufficient social cement, were seen to be a sufficient social cement so long as society was homogeneous, ethnically, uh, uh, religiously, culturally. The more that the European societies become heterogeneous by virtue of migration and cultural change, the more the inadequacy of money as a social cement is exposed. And therefore, it would be necessary to find another practical basis for social solidarity, a way of organizing people's engagement in one another's lives to take care of one another. Now we come to the sixth problem, to the fifth problem, uh, which is the... uh, the the character of the European democracies and, in general, of democracies in the the advanced world. They are low-energy democracies uh, designed to inhibit the political transformation of society and to make change depend on crisis. So the basic rule in European society in the 20th century was that there was uh, change... A decisive change when there was economic collapse or when there was war. And when peace was reestablished, the Europeans fell asleep again and drowned their sorrows in consumption. Uh, and that's been the basic rhythm of European life. Uh, so, And they had been unable to invent uh, a form of political life that would allow them to change themselves without slaughtering one another. So uh, these, these five problems, I'm giving you just an incomplete list, are the fundamental problems of these societies. Huh? Uh, they, they cannot be addressed within the limits of the form of economic and political life that now exists in Europe. The North Atlantic elites, uh, putting aside the plutocratic populace the North Atlantic elites have as their hegemonic project to reconcile European-style social protection with American-style economic flexibility within the limits of the inherited institutional arrangements. So that's, for example, the Nordic model, like Flex Security in Scandinavia or in the Netherlands. Uh, but uh, that uh, project of theirs is entirely inadequate to address these five structural problems that I've listed. So that's that's the basic problem. And then we will come to the discussion of democracy when we ask ourselves, what kind of political life would be capable of addressing these problems?
1: So one thing I think I have to uh, make clear to the listeners that <laughs> it's going to be long answers. And I think um, it's admirable sort of the way because it's rare, this, no, but the structure. The way you
2: do it, but I, no, I, no, I, no, I talk no. like this because my casting mind is systematic. But when I arrange with the journalists, especially the Brazilian journalists, is you edit the material. No,
0: no, no. This no, is no, the no, advantage no. of book. And books. break it
2: up with questions as you like.
1: No, we won't. Because I think it's um, very impressive and very good to have a very structured clear argument. And I, I appreciate that in, Germany, the same time, like that. <laughs> in Germany, they might like we that. In Germany, they might like that. But at the same time, I just want to warn the listeners,
2: it's going to be long. Um, but uh, at the same time, I find your... Um, but you can make them more delicate by cutting them up into little pieces. No, 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 we just, yeah, no, no, no. It's the raw material.
1: But you're still very, very poetic in your in your choice of words. That's what I want to get at. And, and two phrases that that I picked up from your reading or from the class we have the pleasure to to attend is the dead rule over the living and to be agnostic of the future as an ideal. Um, could you explain it seems to me that also the left is ruled in a way by dead thinking over living thinking so I'm not even sure if you're part
2: of a left or isn't the that left. Human,
0: isn't that human nature though? I mean, What would it be like to just live in the present?
2: Well, because the the main intellectual tradition that has influenced the left has been Marxism and classical European social theory. And it has Marxism and many, and the central tradition of classical social theory in Europe has the idea that there is in history a menu, a, a closed menu of alternative institutional regimes feudalism, capitalism, socialism. Each of them is an indivisible package, and there are laws governing their foreordained succession in history. So one of the many practical consequences of this view, which is a deeply false view of historical reality, uh, is that there is a binary structure of politics. Either you are a reformist humanizer of so-called capitalism, or you are a revolutionary uh, adventurer who is seeking to replace one system by another.
0: Listen, George is talking about you.
2: <laughs> now, because, because because the systemic substitution is impossible, or if possible, would be too dangerous, what is left is then to humanize the existing world. So... Many countries in the world now are governed by ex-Marxist, institutionally conservative social Democrats who use the idea of systemic substitution of revolution as an alibi for its opposite. Given that we can't be revolutionaries, all we can be is humanizers. So that's how they think. And this is a poison in European politics and in general. And it helps to account for the rise of the populist right. Because, the, because of the, the, the progressives on both sides of the Atlantic have been bereft of structural ideas.
0: So can you then talk about, because I'm intrigued by this, and I think that um, as someone who comes from the world, world of politics, I think there's this um, sense of great frustration that many people, I think, know that it's true, these big structural problems that you address, but at the same time, they feel that they don't have the tools to deal with yes, it. Yes, it And you've been talking in class about... Which class? Uh, uh, political economy after the crisis. Uh, we are all the class we about. had today. Yes, uh-huh. but not just today. Uh-huh. Uh, the earlier um, uh-huh. lectures as well about your view of change political change yes. and you talk about incremental change yes. and could you talk a little bit, little bit more about that because it sounds hopeful to me and useful well I think first of all this to... is
2: confusion about programmatic discussion now in, in our democracies um, so if I propose something that's distant from what exists you say that's beautiful it's interesting but it's utopian If I propose something that's close to what exists, you say, that's feasible, but it's trivial. So in the present climate of ideas, almost everything that can be proposed uh, risks appearing to be either utopian or trivial. And this false dilemma results from a misunderstanding of the nature of a programmatic argument. Programmatic argument is not about a blueprint. It's about a sequence. It's not architecture. It's music. And in a programmatic argument, the two most important attributes are to envisage a direction and to identify in the unique historical circumstance the initial steps by which to begin to move in that direction. And any direction we're thinking about can be considered at points distant from what exists or close to what exists. Now, this dilemma is aggravated by the the history of ideas, and especially the history of ideas that had influenced the left. So the ideas were these ideas like the Marxist ideas. There's a system, there are laws. There's the one system replaces another system. The systems are indivisible packages. No one believes in that anymore. So they, they use the vocabulary, but they don't believe in the assumptions. So And the conservative positive social sciences have naturalized social life. like economics so they have no structural imagination classical social theory had a structural imagination but a structural imagination tainted by these deterministic assumptions that are no longer credible the result of this intellectual history is that we lack an authoritative way of thinking about structural change and structural alternatives and in the absence of a way of imagining structural change, we fall back on the on the bastardized criterion of political realism, which is proximity to what exists. So, uh, and that helps explain this this false dilemma. Huh? So we're and and the, the, the high academic culture is antipathetic to structural insight. No. In, in, in natural science we understand that to grasp a phenomenon is to have a view of its transformation so the way you understand a physical phenomenon is by having a view of its of the penumbra of the adjacent possible what it can become under certain conditions or certain provocations the, the in, in the social sciences and the humanities now, this link between insight into the actual and imagination of the adjacent possible has been cut. So we have this situation now in the academy in which in the positive social sciences, there is rationalization of the existing world as in economics. In the In the normative disciplines of political and legal theory, political philosophy and legal theory, there's humanization. There's a pseudo-philosophical justification of the mediated practices of institutionally conservative social democracy, the idealization of law and the language of principles and policies, the theories of justice, which appear to be very abstract, but are just really a metaphysical gloss on compensatory tax and transfer. And in the humanities, there's a subjectivist adventurism detached from the reimagination of the making of society. So we have rationalization, humanization, and escapism, all collaborating in the disarmament of the transformative will. Uh, This is what the academy is. So rather than being a source of ideas, it's it brings the change huh? uh, and so
0: where do you find the idea so lo- looking at the, your five problems yes uh, just pick one of them that i think many people especially in europe are thinking about these days uh, the problem of social solidarity yes uh, how would you go about thinking structurally <laughs> you're shaking your head well i
2: mean you think yo know, i'm not saying my <laughs> head in sense the there's no formula so it's like in, poli- in in intellectual life no, but I'm as in politics, you, yeah. you begin anywhere. Huh? Right. So I but am interested is, in general ideas. I'm interested in ideas about everything. So and I think I like uh, the cast in my mind is systematic. Mm-hmm. Huh? Uh, you know, if I can make an interruption, this remark of Friedrich Schlegel's that two things are fatal to the mind. One is to have a system and the other is not to have one. <laughs> So
1: it's your so, German heritage so,
2: so, so we we'll uh, still need to try to uh, you know, continue talking to each other here yes. <laughs> 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 so this is uh, so I think it depends uh, so you can begin to I, I don't believe that the only way to have structural ideas is to be a great thinker, a, a genius, a philosopher you can begin anywhere uh uh, uh, doing a kind of bricolage, cannibalizing the 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 insights of the existing disciplines, uh, but attacking their illusions. You don't have to do it in. You can do it in the form of fragmentary theory related to radical reform. You don't have to do it in the form of comprehensive philosophical ideas. That's the anomalous form. It's a form to which I'm very attracted. But I don't recommend it as standard practice.
1: <laughs> but so to, to assist the current point,
0: yeah, I, think,
1: I think what might be what might be lost in these beautiful Hungarian uh, world worlds of words is that you have a very very positive view of human nature. You have a very very hopeful approach to. Society, you are very optimistic
2: in a way. No, for, about, first of all, as of, if I may
1: insult you, <laughs> but, optimistic may be going too far. But, no, no, but let's
2: make a conceptual clarification. I'm hopeful, but I'm not optimistic. Okay, right? okay. So, reach, so, so optimism hopeful is, is an ironic. Word, optimism is an ironic and contemplative attitude. It's a prediction. I never predict. A hope is an existential orientation. Hope. You, 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 hope is the consequence of action, not the cause of action. You, you, you become hopeful by acting. Uh.
1: And you, ask, and, and first of all, you acted. We may come to that later. You, uh, you worked in politics twice in Brazil, but then you also have very concrete. Steps. Well, I was in the I think government right.
2: twice, but I've worked in politics yeah. for my whole life. Right. The government right. was yeah. an accident. Right. Okay. Okay. But so
1: the word was incremental change. I think that implies that there are certain steps. And you you talked about Absolutely. it. You have very concrete ideas how Absolutely. the legal structure should be changed. Absolutely. You have very concrete ideas about institutions which people sort of cling to. If you talk about the European yeah. context, this is one of the, the saddest ex- experiences in in the whole EU crisis or or, or the, the the crisis of representative democracy. The people fetishize dysfunctional institutions beyond. Their own rationalities, so yes. and, and and so you have very concrete, specific. I wouldn't say visions, but you would steps. say ideas, steps. Yes. What 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 to do? And I think those are very inspiring, engaging, beautiful.
2: But scenarios. initial steps, initial steps are by their nature circumstantial. So, the idea of saying of recommending a succession of steps universally is absurd. Yeah, so in yeah, we won't take you. won't hold yeah, yeah, you yeah. uh, so responsible no, for that. different sure. steps depend on for, the moment on the yeah, circumstance. I'm just looking for yeah. a first step. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the I'm first steps. <laughs> but the but what I'm saying is the first steps are different in each circumstance. Uh, uh, so it, it depends on 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 where you are. If you, for example, you have a debate about the reformation of American democracy, uh, and we're going to talk later about the change of democracies. Uh, There's a domain that has to do with popular engagement in political life, financing of political activity, access to the means of communication, electoral regimes. Then there's a domain of the constitutional arrangements of the state. And then there's the domain of federalism and the relation between central power and locality. If you ask me in the United States where is the best place to begin, I think it's in the reinvention of American federalism but for reasons that are circumstantial to the United States. So it's, it's not a, a general uh, recommendation, it's, it's, a, it's a, a diagnosis of the circumstantial transformative opportunity. But a very, you
1: know? uh, I think, helpful distinction that you um, brought into the debate is about low-energy democracies and high-energy yes. democracies. Yes,
2: but before we get there, I just wanted to say, in relation to these structural problems that we were speaking about, Uh, there's the following important distinction to be made. In the 19th century, the, the liberals and the socialists, each of them believed in an institutional formula. So they had the right conception of the goal. Their understanding of it was somewhat limited. So unlike the contemporary progressives, they understood that the goal of contemporary politics is not to equalize society. The goal is to elevate humanity to a higher plane of power, of intensity, of scope. So it's less the humanization of society than the divinization of humanity, and the, the, the struggle against inequality is ancillary to that. Huh? Their idea of greatness, of a shared bigness, was too limited, because it was formulated on the model of the aristocratic idea of self-possession. But it was in the right direction. Then their method was uh, to propose, each of them, a formula, an institutional formula, the liberal system of rights, the socialist idea of control of the state. Now, we understand now, in our historical moment, that no formula is definitive and adequate. And so we have a unique problem which they were unable to grasp, which is, we recognize, or we should recognize, the need for structural alternatives. But we have every reason not to succumb to a structural dogmatism. Uh, And this is a different problem from the problem that they recognize. Uh, and, And democracy and the transformation of the market economy, both come into that. So we need our alternatives to not be blueprints, definitive formulas. We need them to be experiments that uh, uh, allow themselves or provoke themselves to be corrected along the way so that we can discover the way along the way rather than committing ourselves definitively to an exclusive institutional formula. That's a, that's a different conception. And democracy, the debate about democracy and low energy and high energy democracy comes into that. Because democracy seen from this perspective is a procedure of collective discovery and experiment. It's, it's, a, it's a way of it, it's a finding the way. It's not just the rule of the majority qualified by the rights of the minorities. It's it's a, it's it's a it's a process of collective self construction and self discovery, you know? so that the structure of society is not determined and beyond the grasp of the will and the imagination. You know? So uh, all the democracies that exist now in the world are flawed, low energy democracies. You, you, you reminded me of the. term.
1: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 upfront for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: From low energy. Uh, and the distinction is, so we can distinguish by three related criteria. So the first criterion is the ability of political life to master the structure of society. So theoretically, in the existing liberal democracies, the uh, the structure of society is a choice. But in reality, the law, which is the instrument of politics, is an episodic intervention in a structure that has been inherited. Uh, So, if you if you go back to to the to the Middle Ages, uh, there's the uh, they had two conceptions of lawmaking in 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 medieval Europe. There's the 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 jurisdictio of declaring the common law, and then there's the gubernaculum of the prince of intervening to make specific adjustments. And that's what the law is, these specific adjustments, in a structure that's largely taken for granted. Uh, second, uh, as the, this, it's this, this form of political life is a form in which the, the arrangements are inherited. The dead rule the living. Uh, and third, uh, it's a form in which, for there to be structural change almost invariably, there has to be crisis in in one of two forms, economic ruin or military conflict. And that's the basic rule of these societies. No trauma, no transformation. That's how they're organized. So we would want a different kind of democracy that is able to master the structure of society, that overthrows the rule of the living by the dead, and that weakens the dependence of change on crisis. And that then brings us to the idea of three sets of institutional changes that would define the institutional agenda of high energy democracy. Uh, Changes that elevate the temperature of politics, the level of organized popular engagement in political life. Changes that accelerate the pace of politics, through the rapid resolution of impasse and changes that allow decisive action at the center to be combined with experiments at the periphery, the creating counter models of the national future. That's what I mean by high energy democracy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that concrete enough for you? or um, is, um, I, I would
1: be interested sort of, um, to go back a little in, uh, time for a moment? So, so say, we could uh,
2: illustrate each of these things, of course, because it's not concrete. It's just a, a it's just yeah. an outline, no. But but, but that's what, what, you don't need
1: you need, don't need, blue, blue you need yes, But what I'm
2: saying is that so 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 each of these has their examples. So let, let me just say just a word about each. So so the temperature of politics. So the basic idea in conservative political thinking is that politics is either institutionalized and cold, or it is hot and non-institutional, or extra-institutional. So you have Madison, or you have Mussolini. Yeah? And, and populism is this hot, extra-institutional politics. So, but a progressive has to think, that politics can be both hot and institutional uh, and that and and that, that that problem can be solved not by a single silver bullet but by a series by a cumulative series of institutional transformations in the way of financing political activity in the access of the social movements and political parties to the means of mass communication and in the electoral regimes we can raise the temperature of politics institutionally. Then we come to the pace of politics. So if there's an impasse, there should be early elections, there should be comprehensive programmatic plebiscites. The objective should be to accelerate. The, the You know, the philosopher of science, Karl Popper, said, the aim in science is to make mistakes as quickly as possible. Uh, and it's the same thing. It should be the same thing in politics. And then on the, and, and then on the, on the third domain of, of the combination of decisive action with counter models, with hedging the bets, it's the same thing. So for example, in Britain I debated the question of radical devolution. They think that there's a contradiction between devolution and strong central action, but there isn't. You can have strong central initiative but at the same time allow radical devolution so that different parts of the country or different sectors of the economy can secede from the general solutions and create counter models of the future. It's a way for society to hedge its bets. So for the European societies, the significance of all of this is to say, you shouldn't need to be at war to wake up. Uh, you You should be able to wake up while you're at peace. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, and to do that, you have to reorganize your political life. And then you'll have a political life which is able to generate solutions to the structural problems that I, uh, that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation.
1: So, so, so Karin and I, we talked um, a lot about your language and your sort of, the way you frame your thinking. And I would be curious. Um, sometimes you, you sound like a very, very young philosopher, and sometimes you <laughs> sound like a person who was young in the 70s. Was young in the 70s. Was young in the 70s. And Karin has read the book by Wolfgang Streeck, which she liked a lot about um, problems of contemporary capitalism. And, and I'm just curious of so how much. Uh, why read, that
2: is do you read the preface to the little the the preface i wrote to the german edition of my little book the little programmatic work the left alternative no I, okay I will. so it's about Germany. so so mm-hmm. it's on the subject because at the end of this i mentioned 1968. Mm-hmm. so uh, yeah that's the question so how much how much how
1: much is the 70s relevant today is this post-marxist maybe you can elaborate on your way of thinking of who are your gods sure who are your gods no, no. And so, and why so is it irrelevant today? So the main
2: influences in my on my thinking are uh, there I'm a product of my of my tradition. I'm 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 a heretic because I'm very Orthodox. So I so the influence so 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 the influences like on so, so, so my thinking are Christianity, uh, European philosophy, German idealism uh, the classical European novel and so forth; these are the main influences on my thinking. In, in this preface to the German edition of the, of the little programmatic work, uh, I uh, I mentioned in uh, 1968 and the idea of of imagination and power, huh? uh, and I say that I took those ideas seriously. And I tried to make something of it in in my thought, but it took me many many decades. Uh, uh, and it's a it's, it's a, so there is a, a historical element, but I don't see it as something that limits me. I see it as the 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 gift of this moment in historical experience to humanity to take this idea seriously. And I uh, I end I. I End this preface with a side to a to a phrase of, of William Blake, the, the poet. Blake says, "If the fool would persist in his folly, he would become wise." Uh, so, uh, view so, so, you have to receive the you have to take seriously this this idea and give it a new. So this idea that, that 1968 had is related to something very serious and very contemporary, which is this problem that we were discussing of having structural alternatives without succumbing to structural dogmatism. And therefore, by the radicalization of experimentalism and the organization of experimentalism. Now, there's nothing romantic or unrealistic about this. It's not bad utopianism. This is what we were discussing today in class, the experimentalism of the new economy which has which has to be radicalized in the economy but has to be established also in politics. So the, the high energy democracy will not prosper if the prosaic uh, everyday lessons of economic life contradict it. On the other hand, the, the dissemination of vanguardism in the economy will not advance if there is not a political life capable of mastering the structure of society. So the same fundamental impulse has to resonate in both the economic and the political domain.
0: I have a question about uh, someone who, I'm talking about myself now, came of age politically in the 90s with the um, Mm third-way politicians, and there was this idea of the... um, Final solution, almost the markets and, and democracy could work together, and we would have no uh, major conflicts between you know labor and, and capital anymore. And do you? And now we've had the financial crisis and everything that came after, and the rise of populism. How do you see this?
2: It's all wrong.
0: Yeah, it's all
2: wrong. So, so there's there's, first of all, for two hundred years, there's been this hydraulic model of ideological controversy: what's the the market versus the state? More market, less state; more state, less market; balance between state and market. Uh, Now, a new contest is emerging in the world about the alternative forms of economic, social, and political pluralism. So, with respect to the market, not more market or less market, but which market? So, in under the aegis of these ideas, people think the only two things you can do with the market are first, to regulate it, and second, to compensate for the inequalities it generates.
0: But wasn't that the problem
2: of the 90s, that specific belief? So, but I'm going to get there. So they think either you regulate the market or you attenuate its inequalities retrospectively yeah. through compensatory tax and transfer, progressive taxation and redistribution social time. But there's a third thing, much more important than you can do with the market, which is to reinvent the market, to change the institutional arrangements and the legal rules that define it. Uh, And that's what is necessary for projects such as the project of disseminating throughout the economy the advanced knowledge-intensive form of production. Uh, That's what would be necessary. Now, at this moment in the early 21st century, the hegemonic project of the North Atlantic elites is to combine the European social protection with American economic flexibility. Uh, and all the reforms that are proposed in Europe uh, by the mainstream parties have this character. The flexibilization of social democracy uh, and the American progressives uh, in their turn want to make the United States a little bit more like Europe by raising the level of antidotes to economic insecurity. My claim is that this hegemonic project of theirs is incapable of solving or even addressing any of those structural problems that I mentioned. uh, uh, So there are two obstacles to advancing in this direction. The first obstacle is in the realm of thought, as I mentioned. The dominant currents in thought are anti-structural, they're antipathetic to structural ideas, to structural vision, uh, uh, rationalization, humanization, and escapism. And the second obstacle is politics and the organization of democratic politics. Yeah. The low-energy democracies yeah. make it impossible to shake things up without having crisis. And then the, 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 the short-term beneficiaries of this vacuum are the right-wing populace.
0: But I, I agree with you, but I, I think I would argue that there was a period of, in time when, when progressive parties and and uh, social democratic parties, perhaps uh, more specifically, did think about markets more ambitiously, but that in the... You, I don't think, don't think so. No, I don't think and so. And ownership and no, expanding ownership, so. no? No,
2: I don't think so. Okay. So they, they, their idea of... So, they, they, now, I, I don't think it's impossible for them. I mean, uh, I'll give you an example. So, I, so there's this book by, by Piketty, mm-hmm. huh? which has almost no theoretical structure. It has a, a rudimentary theory of growth. It puts its hand on the wound of inequality. Huh? Uh, and then it proposes, as a solution, the conservative social democratic solution of progressive taxation and so forth, which everyone knows has only a marginal effect. So it 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 calls attention to a problem that is recognized, but it it doesn't provide any structural solution, uh, like the issues we were discussing today of the dissemination of the new economy, of social inclusive form. So you say, well, that's Pikachu. Uh, so he's a, he's a lost case but I was coming back from Brazil the other day and I'm sitting in the airport lounge and I pick up Le Monde and there's a long article by PKT about inequality mm-hmm. and it's nothing like a book, it's full of structural ideas, some of them interesting, some of them not interesting but in an attempt alternative property regimes and so forth so it makes me think that no one is a lost case uh, so uh, people are at the mercy of the ideas that are available to them, and uh, but everyone is searching. So I think the, the terrain is fertile for a transformation. Uh, we need an intellectual practice, which has to be exemplified in some countries in the world, because this is the method of the prophet. The, uh, the prophet... In, you have to touch the wound, like St. Thomas, to believe. Huh? And, uh, and so you have, to, you have to provide some anticipatory embodiment of the future that you promised. Huh? And, but now, because the world is all connected, the, the, the combination of a doctrinal message with even a fragmentary and flawed embodiment could have sensational effect throughout the world. So I think it's it, it's it's ready for a transformation, but the transformation requires ideas.
1: I'm, I'm curious about the role of technology and all of that. Um, and sometimes it sounds as if Silicon Valley could be a model for something, but maybe
2: no, uh, not is, in is, itself. Is, um, is it an ally or an
1: enemy? Well, uh, let's separate technology, technology from
2: Silicon Valley. So I think one way to think of, so one way to think about technology in general is that, and especially advanced technology, is technology is a channel between our experiments with nature and our experiments with our forms of cooperation, the ways in which we cooperate with one another. Uh, Now the American fatalists who have this discourse about secular stagnation have developed the absurd idea that the contemporary technologies have much less potential than the technologies of a previous piece. It's ridiculous. So their their potential is is barely scratched because they're confined by this this very limited set of economic institutions and, and practices. No technological evolution ever determines its own social consequence. That's determined by the context of ideas and the politics within which it occurs. And as we discussed today, the the overriding tendency in the world is for every innovation, technological or organizational innovation, to be cut down to size by being assimilated in the form that is least subversive, what I call the path of least resistance. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's, that's what's That's always the most probable outcome. But it's not the necessary outcome.
0: But is that the role of politics, that the change? A thought
2: and a politics. So I think that's the the affinity between thought or science on one side and democracy on the other. They have a natural alliance because uh, insight is interested in transformation, as I was arguing. No transformative imagination means no understanding. If you, if you see something and you have no view of how it changes, you don't understand it. You, you're just staring at it. Huh? And that's what much of contemporary social science is. It's a, a rationalizing redescription of the phenomenon. It's not transformative insight. Uh, democracy is about not being a puppet to one's historical circumstance. It's about mastering the structure of the context. It's about transcendence. Uh, and that's the alliance. So democracy and, and, and thought are natural allies. Yeah, huh? you said democracy, yeah. because
1: I think, if I remember correctly, you said at some point that's interesting for somebody who might or might not be of the left, you say politics and the economy is a problem because politics shouldn't govern economy or the market at some point, some market, not the market that we talk about as a, a harbinger of evil or, 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 or goodness, is maybe more supportive of, of fostering happiness among the people. If you define the market as something that's sort of
2: changing. That's, that's which, necessary to, to. But which combine. market? But which market? Well, the so, market that so, do you seem to so, envision? That's what I'm so, curious. So, so I think that many readers would be perplexed if they listened or heard or read our conversation. I think it's it's important to. So we were talking about the the near future. Now let me talk about the more distant future because it helps understand what I imagine is the direction. You know? uh, and uh, so I'm imagining that the that the com- the counterpart to high energy democracy is a, a a radicalization and a democratization of the market economy. So, and what are some of the features of this radicalized market economy? So, uh, first, people should be secure in a haven of vital immunities and capabilities so that everything around them can change. Uh, it, you know, it's like the relation of a parent to a child. The parent says to the child, "I love you, my love gives you an inconditional place in the world. No, go go out and raise a storm in the world.
0: Uh, Is that the state or society?
2: So it's a, the this, the law has to guarantee everyone a package of fundamental capability ensuring resources. Uh, so that everything else can be made plastic. You know? So there's this dialectical relation between security and insecurity, you know? uh, uh, rather than the re of the social space. Second, the market economy should not be pinned to a single version of itself. There shouldn't, uh, the, the, the economic idea of freedom to recombine the factors of production should be radicalized into a freedom to innovate in the institutional arrangements of production and change. Uh, Third, uh, uh, we should always, in each historical circumstance, attempt to establish the most advanced practice of production in the form that is most universal, that is most socially inclusive. The most advanced practice of production is the practice that's closest to the imagination. Uh, It's what we were discussing today in class. Uh, Fourth, in the status of labor, uh, the worker, no human being, should be condemned to work as if he were a machine. Mm. So in Henry Ford's assembly line or in Adam Smith's pin factory, the worker imitates the machines with which he's working. This is an abuse of the role of the machine. The machine is to do everything that we've learned how to repeat so that our time can be reserved for the not yet repeatable. Uh, and this is one of the promises of the advanced economy. And fifth, the, 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 we, sh- we have to retake in a new form the idea of the 19th century liberals and socialists that wage labor is an inferior and transitory form of free labor. Uh, and that the higher forms of free labor are self-employment and cooperation related to one another. But to make them compatible with the imperative of economies of scale, we need alternative property regimes. Now, none of that is for now. That's not an immediate agenda. That's a long-term agenda. But it defines the direction uh, in which economic life becomes a terrain of human liberation, of human empowerment. Huh? Uh, it's the theme of the divinization of humanity, not just, the, not just the humanization of society. So when we discuss these issues, of, like the relation of finance to the real economy, or the, the relation of the vanguard to the other sectors of society, we should understand that these are just the initial steps of a possible direction. And the direction has a much more revolutionary potential for the future. That's that's how I'm seeing the 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 market economy as, as this radicalization of experimentalism.
0: Your time is up.
2: No, we have uh,
0: five more minutes. Five more
1: minutes, or okay. one, one answer? Okay. Um, do you want to? Follow on that? Um, I want
0: to ask. One more question about this specific moment. Yeah, we do have about five minutes. Yeah, we have about five minutes. But, uh, this specific moment that we are in. So you were talking before about low energy democracies and how, yes. in a low energy democracy, you need a crisis to, um, to to make change possible. To make change possible. So do we need a crisis?
2: Well, there's this paradox, right? So, the,
0: can I just say that the yeah. class you teach is called political economy after the
2: crisis. Well, it was so, the financial crisis.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it's, it's, this so, was not the crisis. Yeah, so, Do we need so, another crisis? Well, uh,
2: so, so here's so. <laughs> so I propose institutions that diminish the dependence of change on Christ. Yes. And then the question is do these institutions themselves require Christ?
0: Exactly. That's
2: the question you're That's asking. That's my question. And so this is the danger of a vicious circle. How do we break that vicious yeah. circle? Huh? Uh, and this is where the imagination and the prophetic voice have to cut the Gordian knot. They have to intervene to, to to write the scales in one direction. Huh? The other direction, i, I, I so there, there are two directions in which one can result, address this problem: from from the top down and from the bottom up. Mm-hmm. From the top down, it's the prophetic voice, the visionary impulse, the role of the intellect mm-hmm. in in standing in the place of crisis. The imagination does the work of crisis without crisis. Uh, and from the, and from the bottom up, it's the understanding that every uh, every class interest or group interest can be defined and defended in two different sets of ways. One way is institutionally conservative and socially solidaristic. And the other way is institutionally transformative, and the other way is institu- so one way is institutionally conservative and socially exclusive. The other way is socially solidaristic and institutionally transformative. So for example, the the workers in mass production industry in the United States, the American progressives and Trump, both of them, have a purely defensive view. So we'll, we'll, we'll slow down the plant closings. We'll prevent the relocation of jobs to abroad will respect the vested rights of these workers uh, to slow down a process which they don't know how to reverse or to replace. That's what I'm calling the socially exclusive and institutionally conservative way of defining and defending the group. On that view, the immediate neighboring groups are the enemy, the subcontracted workers, the temporary workers, the foreign workers, the petty bourgeoisie, the small business class. On the other view, this project has no future. And it's necessary to have a project for the conversion of traditional mass production industry into something else, the more inclusive form of the advanced practice of production. And on that view, the groups that were previously defined as the enemy become potential allies in this process. So if mass production industry is going to be converted into something else, it has to be by procedures similar to the procedures that would lift up and transform the world of small business. Uh, So what I'm saying is that the the, the vicious circle can also be attacked from the bottom up, not by prophecy, but by calculus, by strategy, by persuasion, uh, in in the attempt to redefine the interests the interests of the segments of the labor force of the classes in another discourse, in another strategy. And uh, the transformation of the world depends on this alliance of calculus and prophecy. Uh, And that's how we we shake things up. But to shake things up, we have to have ideas. So the the world doesn't need ideas to reproduce itself. Uh, its ideas are only necessary to stop it from reproducing itself. <laughs> On that note, uh,
1: yeah. On that note, and always remind, remember, be agnostic of the future. That's um, the important so no, the, the uh-huh. lesson.
0: The time's up for the podcast, but can, can we have to drink wine and talk about this another time? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: This was anger management, the podcast about. Adventures in Democratic Thinking. My name is Georg Dietz.
0: And Karin Pettersson. And that was an intense hour with the Brazilian philosopher, politician, Harvard superstar Robert, Roberto Mangabeira Unger, don't you think?
1: It was intense. Uh, it was inspiring, I thought. Um, the way that he um, really laid out his plan, I, I thought it was very concrete how to reinvent democracy and, and the market.
0: And this is the type of people that we want to talk to in this podcast. And next week, we'll try to... Uh, Invite someone else,
1: some other visionary,
0: yeah, and have some more wine, perhaps.
1: And we hope to join uh, for us to join for, for you to join us um, for uh, this production. Anger Management is um, in cooperation, produced in cooperation with uh, 60 Hertz and Berlin Community Radio,
0: and aftermath, it and
2: also Niemann Foundation.
1: So, please,
2: welcome back next week.
1: And if you like the content, feel free to share.